It is Christmas here at Prodigal, and uh, we go big. And uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but we wanted to do this like three weeks ago. Uh, and so uh, we're going to have a great time. And Christmas is about Jesus. It's about God in a bod, right? God becoming man. And we're going to have a great time celebrating it. Christmas is also about kids. And we have an incredible PC Kids Ministry here at Prodigal, and here to tell you more about a, a, a really cool way during this Advent season to get our families more involved and to bless our kids. I want to call up Brittany Howard, our children's pastor. She's going to share briefly about this new opportunity. Yes, thank you, John. Um, as some of you guys may have seen on your way in, we have boxes over in the toddlers, our big classroom over here. And what we decided to do was um, our heart is to really equip you guys with the skills to also teach your kids. We're not the best people to do that. Uh, we have one day a week, but you guys have six, um, aside from the ones that we have them here on Sunday. So we wanted to give you guys an elf on the shelf, but this elf is special. He's come to teach us the Advent season. So in the box, there's um, this book, and it has a scripture reading every day, a practical application um, for your child and also all the stuff to stage the elf. So if you're one of those people that wanted to or aspire to, but it's just too much, we did all the work. So we provided it all there for you um, and laid it out so that you could help your child walk through this Advent season and practically apply it. If they wanted these, where would they pick them up? In the classroom over here to your left um, where the check-in station is. And, you know, Traveling from the North Pole, the flights, the passports, <laughs> all that stuff. Like, how much do these cost? They're free. They're, it's our gift from PC Kids to you That's guys. That's amazing. Give Brittany a round of applause. This is an exciting thing for us and our kids. And so, uh, if you've got grandkids uh, and you think this would be an amazing, man, we encourage you to grab them. I think there might be one left. Uh, but it's an amazing way for us to be able to equip our families um, in teaching the Advent story, the amazing Christmas story that we see uh, in Jesus. John Lennon said this, there are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. All hopes for a better world rest in the fearlessness and open-hearted vision of people who embrace life. We've been going through this No Fear November series, and we've really gone back each week to this acronym about fear, and it's face your fears with faith, examine your assumptions in light of the facts, attack your anxieties with action, and release your cares to God. And you might be thinking, how can we tie in Christmas to this No Fear November series? And it was really easy because in the Christmas story, we find four times uh, an angel appearing and saying, do not fear. Uh, it, look at Zechariah. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Look at Mary. The angel says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Look at Joseph. The angel visits him in a dream to say, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Look at the shepherds. They are told, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Embedded into the Christmas story is this message, do not be afraid. And so as we transition from No Fear November into our new Christmas series next week, this, sudden, this, this Sunday is fitting because the Christmas story addresses our fears. Luke 1 says this, it won't be on the screens, um, but it says this, In the time of the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, 
His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, we have gone a long way in uh, the study of medicine to understand why some people get pregnant and some people don't. And, but in the ancient world, this was not the case. Uh, for Jews in the first century, the absence of children was seen as a reproach, evidence of God's judgment on sin. They, they didn't understand that there was medical complications for why someone may or may not be able to get pregnant. The Jewish rabbis said that seven types of people were excommunicated from God. And the list started like this, a Jew who has no wife or a Jew who has a wife and has no child. In fact, childlessness was grounds for divorce in the ancient world. So as well as being a heartache for both Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, it was also a social and spiritual stigma. How hard it must have been for this young couple to keep on obeying God, to keep remaining consistent in their faith, and still bear the sentence of a life deemed unacceptable by everybody else. They prayed and prayed, and they did what was right, and God seemed silent. It was too late for them. Too late too late. Have you ever felt like it's too late? Too late to have children, too late for marriage, too late to pursue my dreams, too late to make a difference in our world. It plagues us. And the name Zechariah itself means God remembers. What a sick joke, right? He's been praying this his whole life. God, bless me with a kid. Bless me with a kid. I'm a reproach to everybody in my society. All of my family looks down upon me. I'm excluded because I don't have a kid. God, give me a kid. God, give me a kid. And the Bible says that he was righteous in God's sight, that he did all the right things. He said all the right prayers. He was a good man. So was Elizabeth. And yet God seemed strangely silent. When you're doing all that God has asked you to do and he still doesn't respond to your prayers, that's hard. That's faith. That's perseverance. These two press on. And when life hits us with these disappointments, we have two choices. We can become bitter or we can become better. And this happens all the time with us, right? We talked about this last week in uh, feeling sorry for ourselves. We can become bitter or we can become better. All of us have faced some kind of adversity in our lives. We can help it make it sharpen us, and we become stronger, better, more faithful, more loving, more Christ-like, or we can go to the woe-is-me attitude and begin to feel sorry for ourselves. There have been times in my own life when I'm praying for this one thing. It's on the forefront of my mind. I'm doing everything I can. I'm living for God. I'm praying again and again and again, and yet God seems silent, and it makes, it makes me angry, Right? There have been times when I've been mad at God, but you're a pastor. I know, don't tell anyone. I'm mad because I'm doing all the right things. I, I, I feel like I'm doing great. I feel like I'm doing all the right things. I feel like that God should be able to answer this one small request. I'm crying down here and he's twiddling his thumbs up there, right? You ever been there? Yet Zechariah means God remembers. Even in times where we're convinced that God has forgot, God remembers. And here we see that Zechariah and Elizabeth have an uncanny reputation of following God. 
having great character and great faith, even in the midst of God not answering this one prayer. They chose to get better, not bitter. Look at verse 11. It'll be on the screens. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Standing to the right of the incense altar, Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. God remembers. Notice that the angel says, God heard your prayer. He doesn't say God heard your prayers. So that one prayer that they've been praying again and again and again, the angel says God's heard that prayer. And that one prayer for you, we all have this, right? That one prayer that we've prayed again and again and again, and it seems like God's silent. It seems like someone hit the mute button because I'm not hearing anything. We've lost reception. Nobody's home. God hears our prayer. He hears that one prayer. God remembers your prayer as well. He always remembers. Every prayer that seemingly goes unanswered, God remembers. Every moment when you felt like the heavens were strangely silent, God remembers. That's the testimony of Zechariah. Don't give up on your miracle. God hasn't forgotten about you. God remembers. What seemed like unexplainable silence was really God's work in Zechariah and Elizabeth in preparing them for the birth of their son, John. Don't fear, God remembers. Let's look at Mary. Look at Luke chapter 1. It says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, it's a continuation of Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will not end. Beautiful, beautiful. I read about a, a police officer pulled over a guy for speeding, and they had the following exchange. The officer rolls, tells him to roll down the window, and he says, let me see your driver's license. The guy says, I don't have one. It's been suspended since I got my 16th fender bender. The officer says, okay, um, can I see the owner's card for the vehicle? He says, well, it's not my car. I stole it. He says, the car's stolen? He says, yeah, that's right. But come to think of it, I think I saw the owner's card in the glove box when I was putting my grenade in there. There's a grenade in your glove box? Yes, sir. That's why I put it after I blew up my neighbor's garage and severely wounded his cow, which is in the back of the trunk. You've got a cow in the back of your trunk? Immediately, the guy calls her back up. His car's surrounded. The captain walks up to the window. And he says, sir, can I see your license, please? And he pulls out his license, and it's valid. He says, can I see the owner's card? And so he shows him the owner's card. It matches the, the license, the registration. And he says, sir, could you please slowly open the glove compartment? And he opens it, and there's no weapon of any kind. And then he says, sir, could you pop the trunk? And he pops the trunk, and there's nothing in the back, certainly no maimed cow. And the captain says, I don't understand. The officer that stopped you said that 
you don't have the owner's card, you don't have a license, it's been suspended, there's a grenade in your glove compartment, and there's a cow in the back. And the man says, I bet that officer told you I was speeding as well. And the captain says, he did. Have a nice day, sir. Be gone. Gets off scot-free. If you were that officer who pulled him over, what would be your response? You would lose it. This is ludicrous. This is crazy. So many emotions would arise to the forefront of your mind, you wouldn't know what to do or say. I'm sure the same was similar with, uh, with Mary, an angel of the Lord appearing to her. You're pregnant. Huh? Uh, I think I know how that works. Health class has grown a lot in the last 2,000 years, but I'm pretty sure the same way you get pregnant now is the same way you got pregnant 2,000 years ago. And Mary says, I've never done the act that makes you get pregnant. What do you mean I'm pregnant? It's this amazing encounter. Here's Mary, perhaps thinking of marriage, preparing for her big day. She's pledged to be married to a great Jewish man, carpenter named Joe. She's dreaming of driving the family SUV. The kids are arguing who gets to sit in front of the camel. This is her dream. This is her life. She's got it all head out in front of her. And then the angel Gabriel appears and completely rocks her world. God completely disrupts her life. And she says, okay. Mary let God completely disrupt her life. She had plans. She knew which path she was going to take. She was on that road. Then God disrupts her plan to give her something so much greater. She didn't know it was going to be greater. And it's often like this with us, right? When we were younger, we had our plans. And our plans got disrupted. We got pregnant. Uh, we lost our job. We moved to another city. We got a divorce. Our life will get disrupted. Things won't go according to plan. It's been true in my life. You know what my major was before I switched it to ministry? Political science. Okay. I was going into politics, but God disrupted my life in the form of living in Malawi, Africa, one of the poorest nations in our world, for six months when I was 19 years old. So Jesus trumped my dream of being a politician. Too far? Okay. Living out God's call in your life is always much greater than living out your own dreams. God gives you new dreams that you never dreamed of. You never settle when you follow Jesus. Never. I really sense that some of us feel like we've settled in life and you're living in regret. And I'm telling you that you're, you are in this situation with this person, with these people in this city, in this church for such a time as this. God has you right where he wants you. And right now, God could be in the midst of disrupting your life. May we have eyes to see the new dreams that God gives us the dreams that are right before us. Do not fear. God's plans are greater than yours. Let's look at Joseph, Matthew chapter 1. He says this. Mary's told him he's, that she's pregnant. They're engaged. He's probably thinking, um, we haven't been that close yet. And so he's thinking and contemplating of a way of divorcing her, 
but he didn't want to disrespect her and leave her with nothing. And so he's thinking about the right way to do this without her looking bad. But he's going he's gonna to end the marriage. He's going to end the proposal because she's knocked up and he didn't do it. And she says, oh, it was God. And he's like, sure it was. And he walks away. And verse 20 says this, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded, took Mary home as his wife. But she did not, they did not consummate the marriage until she had given birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus. I find it interesting that after calling Joseph's name, the first thing the angel says to him is, don't be afraid. Imagine that as a conversation starter. I think of the times when I'm talking to my wife, Sarah, and the first thing I tell her is, don't be mad, but it's a cue for that whatever comes next, she has something to be angry about, right? And the same is true here with Joseph. That same apprehension of don't be afraid, Joseph. When God calls you to do something, and the opening lines are, don't be afraid, you should probably be afraid. He's saying, don't be afraid, but God's saving plans for the world are entrusted into your care. They were dependent upon a carpenter raising a, a baby that's not his own. Isn't that amazing? That the God of the universe entrusts his saving plans for the world in the form of Jesus as a baby to this carpenter to raise him as if he were his own. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to do what God's calling you to do. Look at the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. What do we know about shepherds in the first century? Well, the Jewish commentaries at the time, the Midrash, said that there's not a more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. First century shepherds were on the lowest of the socioeconomic ladder. They were typically uneducated. They were usually poor. And since they lived among animals and in the elements, never looked good and they never smelled good. Because most shepherds didn't own land, they would graze the flocks in the property of their neighbors. How would you feel if your, if your neighbor just continued to bring his dog over and walk it on your lawn all the time? This is similar. Shepherds were tolerated, but they were never esteemed. And we often think of shepherds, especially in the Christmas story, as like these clean-cut kind of guys, and uh, there's like a, they got their arm around their buddy, their little sheep, and it's cute and cuddly. But this is not how a first century hearer would respond to a story like this. Uh, they wouldn't have found the little sheep and the little shepherd cute or endearing. They would have found it shocking. They would have found it scandalous that, a sh that shepherds were the first witnesses. 
They were so looked down upon in the first century that they were not allowed to bear witness in the court of law. If there was a crime committed, but your only alibi was you were hanging out with your shepherd friends, you're toast because their testimony didn't matter in the court of law. Yet they're the ones who are called to bear witness to the Christ child first. They're the ones to bear witness to the Savior of the world. Why? Why would God choose these lowly, poor, stinky, night shift shepherds to be the first to witness Jesus and to go and share that message? Well, because if lowly night shift shepherds could do it, so can we. What's our excuse? It's important. This demonstrates a rhythm in life. Others tell us about Jesus. Then we see and encounter him with our own eyes and hearts and believe. And then we go and tell others what we've seen. And we go back to our regular lives changed, full of joy, life, and love. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. Others tell us. We respond when we encounter the risen Christ. We go tell others, and we live, un- we live changed because of it. You can be a witness for Jesus. A witness is someone who just bears witness to the love that God has shown them. You don't have to know it all. You just tell people what you've experienced. You can't be wrong if you tell people what you experience. You dismantle any need to argue. In fact, in a court of law, you don't want to put all the pieces together and come up with some grand theory of what happened, that's called conjecture. You also don't want to witness stuff that you heard other people say, but you yourself don't know well. That's called hearsay. I don't know if this is wrong. Some of us will say, we have these excuses. Well, I'm newer, or I don't know that much about the Bible. Some will say, well, I just don't feel led to be a witness or to share. If you don't feel led, here's my encouragement to you. Grab a pencil, put it in your pocket. Don't feel led. Hand in your pocket, and then you'll feel led. (laughs) We're called to be witnesses. It's a mandate in Scripture. When someone asks you a question you don't know, you can say, that's a good question. I don't know. You don't need to tell them every answer or start making stuff up. It's okay to not know. Uh, there's an arrogance that's in an, often an ignorance in the Christian community that we could probably do without. Uh, it's okay to say, I don't know. You could say, I don't know. That's a good question. I'll, I'll look into that. But here's one thing I do know. I was blind. Now I see. Uh, Scripture teaches us again and again that we are loved by God, that we belong to him, that he is everything that we need. And we should share and show that love to be witnesses. I'm not the best witness to your friends and family. Brittany said this earlier. Brittany's not the best witness to your friends and family. You are. Now, Some of you are getting just a little bit more fear and anxiety in the middle of this because you don't want to be that guy. I agree, okay? We all know that guy who is so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good, and he's Mr. Spiritual, and 
he wants to win a debate rather than actually love and have a conversation with someone, right? And here at Prodigal, we're, we're more interested in having conversations than we are counting conversions. Uh, we want to move with the Spirit. And we think that's in the direction of more love in our world. That's the best way to be a witness. Show that love. We, like the lowly night shift shepherds, are called to bear witness. I want to invite knowing the band to come up. And as we close this No Fear November series, risk-taking isn't natural for us. The amygdala itself is risk-averse, right? Uh, none of us had parents when they dropped us off at school uh, as little kids. None of them ever said, hey, so have a risky day. I want to nature. And when you cross the street, just look one way, that's it, and take that step. No, we're risk averse. They always say, be careful. It's a dangerous world out there. Do not be afraid. I have heard your prayers. Do not be afraid. God remembers. Do not be afraid. You're highly favored. Do not be afraid to take that risk. Don't be afraid. The gospel is good news. It's good news. God, I pray that in Jesus' name, that whatever, whatever that stirring is, that whatever that thing that, that came up to our heart, the series, I just pray that, that we'd recognize maybe that's your spirit saying we need to do something about it. I pray, God, that, that we would take that step of faith, whatever it is. I pray that, that, that we would feel led. That whether we feel led or not, we would be able to be witnesses to your love. Thank you, God, that you chose the poor, the unrecognizable, the lonely, the disenfranchised to testify. The people who weren't allowed to testify in Israel are proclaimed to testify in the Bible, and they were the first to see God in a bod, the baby Jesus. Thank you, for God. You call us to respond as well. You, tell, you call us to bear witness. God, thank you that you've heard our prayers. And for those in this room that have had that one prayer and they've been praying that one prayer and you seem like you're not listening, it seems like you've turned us off that we can't, that no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we do, no matter how much good, how good we are, you're never gonna answer that prayer. God, I pray that you would assure us in the spirit that God remembers. You have heard that prayer. I pray that you'd speak to us, Jesus. Help us take greater steps towards you. Thank you, God, that we're not alone. We're not alone. That Emmanuel, God, is with us. We love you, Jesus. Fill us up with your great love and let fear and anxiety fade. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close with this song together?
can't go back to the beginning I can't control what tomorrow will bring But I know here in the middle Is the place where you promised to be